Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. Today is a very special day. We are kicking off season six of Connected Intelligence with our first ever in-person podcast recording. This means that video snippets are available all over our socials. Today's episode is with one of my favorite leadership teams on planet Earth, Jordi Rose and Suzanne Gildert. Jordi and Suzanne are co-founders of Sanctuary AI, a company on a mission to create the world's first human-like intelligence in general purpose robots. Prior to Sanctuary, Jordi founded D-Wave, the world's first quantum computing company, and he was the CEO of Kindred, the world's first robotics company to use reinforcement learning in a production environment. He has sold quantum computers and robots to Google, NASA, Lockheed Martin, Gap, and several U.S. government agencies. Jordi was named the 2011 Canadian Innovator of the Year, was listed on Foreign Policy Magazine's 100 Leading Global Thinkers in 2013, and won the 2014 Canadian Technology Leader Award. Jordi holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of British Columbia. He's a two-time Canadian national wrestling champion and a McMaster Engineering Physics graduate. Before Sanctuary, Suzanne founded Kindred. The acquisition of Kindred by Okado in November 2020 was the third largest exit for a robotics company in Canadian history. While at D-Wave, Suzanne invented and implemented MaxCat, the world's first game ever played against a quantum computer. She worked on the world's first supervised classifier run on a quantum computer and was the first person to control the motion of a robot using a quantum computer. Suzanne holds a PhD in experimental physics from the University of Birmingham. She is a published digital artist and poet, has worked as a graphic designer, and pioneered a technique for creating art using a quantum computer. So why can't large language models make me a cup of tea? Suzanne walks us through the answer to this question to illustrate the importance of developing embodied artificial intelligence. We chat about Jordi and Suzanne's working dynamic, how both robots and AI are essential to the future of manufacturing, how we might build factories in outer space, and the ways in which people can adapt to the technology surrounding them. Please enjoy Jordi and Suzanne. Jordi and Suzanne, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. So Sanctuary AI is on a mission to create the world's first human-like intelligence and general purpose robots. As of course you know, your work is so exciting. But before we get into the details of what Sanctuary is doing today, I really wanted to dig into a bit about your team chemistry. This podcast is about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. And you've both been working together for so long. So I wanted to start at the beginning of how did you meet and start working together? Mm-hmm. Jody, do you want to talk about that? You, you found me in the first instance, I think. Yeah, so this was back in probably 2009 Nine, or 10. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, at the time I was the CTO of D-Wave and part of my responsibility was team building and hiring people. And in the field that we were in, which is uh, superconducting processes in quantum computing, there was a very thin talent base around the world. There just weren't a lot of people who did it. Unlike now, which is it's kind of exploded but back then there was a, it was pretty sparse. So we had a bunch of uh, open job recs 
for experimental physicists working in device physics for superconducting qubits. And you can imagine all of those words together meant that there weren't a lot of people. So I went on a uh, an internet search, and back then the internet only had like five pages or whatever, so it didn't take, take <laughs> long, and uh, looked for talented people about to graduate from uh, PhD degrees in associated fields in physics and physics and stuff like that. And uh, it was a very short list. Um, I contacted every single person on the list. Uh, Suzanne was one of them. So I, I think I just sent a uh, an email out of the blue and said, yeah. "Hey, I'm Jordy. I'm doing this thing." It was weird actually because I'd been sort of stalking D Wave for many years. So being in this superconducting quantum device physics realm, there was only one company in the world that was actually commercializing this technology. So I'd been sort of stalking this company for a while. I never even thought to actually reach out to them and talk to them. So when I got this email out of the blue, I was like, whoa, <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. So I, uh, I sent an email and said, hey, want to have a have a conversation about what we're doing? And uh, Suzanne replied. And and that was basically the the beginning of the of what's now more than, I guess, we've how long been working together? More than 10 years mm -hmm. yeah, like since 12, then. Yeah, 12, 13 years. And when did you realize when you started working together that you really shared the same passion or were on the same wavelength with regards to how you solved problems and attacked complex issues? We'd been having some conversations about brains and AI even before I joined D-Wave. I remember because we did a couple of sort of phone exchanges while I was still working in the UK. And even we were talking a lot about quantum computing, but even then we started talking about AI and brains. So it became quite obvious that we were both thinking outside of the field of what we were already doing at that point. And yeah, some of those conversations were very blue sky, big vision, science fictioning type conversations. So I think there was a, there was a shared interest there. Just to, to color that in a bit, the thing we were doing at D-Wave was, um, it was ahead of its time in many respects, but one of them was it was an analog neural net. So not a lot of people realize this, but the architecture of the D-Wave chip uh, was a neural net that you basically baked into the processor. It, the neurons were qubits, which made it kind of weird, but it was, it was the sort of thing that people are now starting to talk about doing with, you know, large language models and things like that is actually baking them into a chip. So back then I was very interested in connecting artificial intelligence uses because it was essentially a kind of neural net. By the way, for the technical people who may be listening, it was a strange kind of neural net because the 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 bits were binary. There were zeros and ones, which means it's more like a Boltzmann machine, if anybody knows what that is. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. That's fine. I don't even really remember what they are a bunch. But anyway, there was a there was a connection to the AI field right from the very beginning of D-Wave. And so I was scouting for people who kind of had understanding of both the advanced AI research field and the quantum computing field. And there weren't many. In fact, one of the reasons why we started working together at D-Wave, because originally Suzanne was hired to be an experimental physicist, which was, wasn't something that I interacted with much at the company. I was the CTO. The experimental physics people had a boss who reported to me. So it was kind of like a different kind of deal. But my uh, main um, emphasis at the time was trying to connect customer problems to what we were doing. So it was a technical marketing thing. And so our customers were people like Lockheed Martin and Google and those sorts of folks who were working on an advanced AI at the time. And because of our ongoing conversations about artificial intelligence, I essentially recruited Suzanne from her experimental physics team into my group 
which was uh, customer focused and AI focused. So that was kind of, I guess, the next stage in the evolution of our working together is is going from ostensibly the reason she joined the company to working more closely with the team I was building to do AI mapping into these quantum computing chips that we were building. I'm a big believer in the magic of interdisciplinary teams. I'm curious to know how, from when you first started working together on that team to now, your skills complement each other. What does that look like? Oh, that's a good question. My main skill is in the creative idea generation realm. So I'm a bit like a generative AI model. <laughs> so I will just... You do hallucinate quite a bit. <laughs> I just come up with... fact check your, Yeah, uh... hundreds and hundreds of different ideas and... And I think it's it's a blessing and it's also a curse. So I've got definitely a streak of the creative artist in me. And I think that's where all the ideas come from. But then you have to be paired with people who are good at then turning those into solid plans with solid deliverables, executing on those plans, turning those into products and things that exist in the real world. So I think like Jordi has some of the skills in that area that I'm a bit lacking in or... I find a lot of stuff, process and operations type things, quite tedious. Sometimes <laughs> I want to just do the idea generation and the creativity part of things. So, yeah, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I <clears> think <throat> again, I, not I, uh, saying he's not creative, but I, I think that I'm I'm good at uh, <laughs> understanding things. Yeah. So if somebody comes up with something, I can I can learn about it or, or or wrap my head around it pretty quick. But I'm not good at coming up with new ideas. So I think the main uh, interplay that we have is uh, all of the visioning and the kind of the, the sketching of the broad outlines of what we've done over now three companies, really, is all being Suzanne. So the our previous com company, Kindred Sanctuary, and to a certain extent, the last few years at D-Wave, the overall structure of what we tried to do was her vision. But I was the executor, mm -hmm. so I would go in and figure out what part of her vision needed to go because it wasn't achievable or reasonable or doable with the resources we had. Kind of a, a more kind of like a, a kind of like a, a sculptor. So mm -hmm. I would come in and take the the idea and kind of just chisel it a little bit, and then take on the responsibility of building the teams and, and sourcing the resources, financing the whole thing, and then making it happen. So I think part of the reason why we work so well together is that I can't do that first step. If it was up to me, I, we would end up doing some boring thing that no one cared about because I don't have the imagination to come up with it in the first place. But, I'm but very if good we at, didn't have him, we wouldn't have built big teams and yeah. being able to grow the company because I'm you know, that's one of my weaknesses is I tend to think I can do all this myself rather right. than thinking about how to grow like really kind of diverse team with lots of different skills. It sounds like Suzanne does the why and the creativity is in the why and the what. And Jordy, your creativity is in the how. How do we get there? Yeah. And I think that there's there's a, a lesson I've learned with uh, with working with Suzanne and other and other high performing people is that if somebody has a track record of success, you trust them even if you don't believe what they're saying. So I've, I've come to this <laughs> thing where she'll say something absolutely <clears throat> ridiculous, not just Suzanne, but some of the other, you know, really good people that we work with. They'll say something and I just think that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> but I keep that to myself now because I've had so many instances where I thought that and she or the other folks have turned out to be right mm -hmm. and I was wrong. So my, my attitude now towards the uh, more creative people on the team 
is to uh, to instead, and I actually learned this from uh, one of our, our new colleagues, uh, Matt Ellis, who is our person who runs product, is uh, you ask the question, what would it take instead of that stupid, let's not do that. <laughs> and the uh, power of what would it take is significant because now you're forced to deal with the question of why exactly do I not think this is a good idea mm-hmm. and and write it down. And often your initial impulse doesn't survive that process. And you think, well, wait a minute, there actually is a way to do this and it might actually make sense. And by the way, this solves three or four other problems that I've been dealing with uh, at one stroke. So I think this uh, confronted with a novel creative idea, especially from cr- the creative process, which is not, I'm not comfortable with it. And, and then asking the question, just, just, it's an algorithm, right? You don't think, you always ask the question, what would it take to do this? Then you can reject it after you've gone through that if it still doesn't make sense. But often it ends up being one of those. Because the thing is like big idea companies need this because if you just do the things that everybody's always done, you'll mm-hmm. fail. Mm-hmm. So you need to have these kinds of like uh, jets of brilliance that take you in unexpected directions. And if you don't have that, you're just never going to pull it off. It's almost like you get the jet stream and follow as a Peloton, get everybody behind that idea. I'm sure that given that you've worked together for over 13 years now, you may have come across times where you disagree or experience friction. I'm so curious to understand how you manage through any moments where you had different visions of how you should approach a problem or even create something new at all. What does that look like? I tend to, in the spirit of what Jody was just saying, I tend to just wait <laughs> So this, what happens is a new idea comes on the table and people who are creative and very open in the personality sense of that word, i.e. they're, they're open to new ideas, absorb it very quickly and they want to just take it and run with it. But then other types of personalities don't like that. They don't like things changing quickly. But what, what you find is if you don't try and push that, if you let it sit on the table for a while and then you come back to it, you re-explain it a bit later on, you wait a bit later, and then eventually people will kind of start to come on board. When you know an idea is really taken hold is when people start to think it was their idea. <laughs> That's where you want to get to. You want to be like, yep, wasn't me. <laughs> so you create and then practice patience. Yeah. And it's very important to understand different people's working styles and different people's personalities. Because if you're a person with my personality, initially, this just seems irritating and annoying. It's like, why doesn't everyone just understand this idea and want to do it straight away? And over time, you learn that's not what, you know, how a lot of people think. And the other way of thinking is really important, too, because you need people who are very calm and patient and steady and really think things through before rushing into things. So you need a balance. Yeah. I love that. Jordi, as far as the team goes, when you started Sanctuary with your co-founding team, this vision has now grown. Your team has a recent 75 million Series A funding raise. I mean, how many team members do you have now? And what types of skills and different types of folks have you brought into Sanctuary to continue to build the, the vision of the future? The total headcount now is about 130. So yes, it started off with, I think, eight, mm-hmm. something around mm-hmm. there. The team's grown by about 100 over the last year. Gosh. So it's, it's considerable growth. And the types of people that we've brought on so far are, are mostly technical, engineering and uh, research folks. And there's roughly a split because what we do has this uh, very intimate connection between hardware and software. It's about half and half. 
and often the people who work on hardware, and which are, in our case means robotics systems, but not only, also networking and computation also, uh, they, they're the kinds of hardware people who are, are used to dealing with, with writing code for hardware. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a specific type of person who works in, in that kind of field. I think that this, this term mechatronics is kind of about right. A lot of those sorts of folks. But then on the other, on the other side, the software side, it tends to be people who are more pure software folks who are used to dealing with game engines, uh, physics simulation, that kind of thing. The uh, machine learning, of course, of the hundred so folks that we've added, uh, I would I would guess probably about three quarters are kind of advanced degree research and, and engineering folks across hardware and software. What's your <clears throat> approach to making sure that everyone stays laser focused on the mission for Sanctuary. Because when you're thinking about 130 people, they're technical, they're creative. Sometimes when you get a group that large, things can lose shape a little bit or we can start pursuing things that aren't core to the mission. What's your approach to making sure that that happens every day at, at Sanctuary? I think we have this a little easier than maybe some other companies because we have this this artifact that we can all look at, which is the the, the humanoid robot. So when you look at that thing, you're not just looking at um, a hardware product that we're trying to make. We're looking at the vision of turning this thing into something that can exhibit all the properties of human-like intelligence. And we have um, a very specific way in which we test the system using teleoperation. So we put a person in a VR suit. Um, I think we might talk about this later. We call them a pilot and they actually take control of the robot. And so people see the robot moving. They see it doing tasks in a very human-like way. The cool thing about that is the vision of the company is now completely clear. Mm -hmm. We want to make it look like that when it's running in AI mode. So you've got this visual like depiction of the future. That's what we want to create. And also the, the robot is always like center stage in our testing area. We, we have this um, ground truth cafe slash robot testing area <laughs> and the robot's kind of like front and center behind the bar. So it's almost like something you can you can look at and, and sense the future. And I think everyone in the company experiences that every day. So it reminds us of, of where we're where we're really going. In March of this year, you also started the Ground Truth podcast, which yeah. is awesome. You've covered everything from LLMs to human-like intelligence and robots, training AI to work, aligning AI with human values. You both have so much on your plate as you're building Sanctuary. Why is it important to make time to create this type of content? Well, the, one of the reasons we started the Ground Truth podcast was exactly what you were just talking about. So... You know, as the company grows, you can't have one-on-one -on -one FaceTime with every single person in the company, but we still wanted people to hear those kind of conversations that, that we've had ever since the founding of the company. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, if we do a podcast, not only is everyone in the company able to hear our kind of conversations and thoughts on what we're trying to build, but we can we can make it, make it public as well. So everyone in the whole world can can hear these conversations, <laughs> good or bad. There's a, uh, as like new technologies emerge and General intelligence is a powerful new technology that's uh, being discussed at all levels from undergrad to halls of Washington. The narrative is being driven by certain kind of ideas that we don't share. The primary one is that AI is a tool for good. That is what we firmly believe mm -hmm. and that more of it is better. 
So we have a perspective on the on the on this uh, zeitgeist that is not the one that's always shared publicly by other members of the community. So we wanted to have, in addition to the kind of tactical reasons for doing it, we wanted to have an outlet to at least communicate our views on this very important topic. So for me, it's also a way to to share our perspective that the the world not only will be better with more and more and more of this thing, uh, but why and have the time to kind of discuss it in a, an unhurried way uh, so that we don't have to be forced into sound bites. You know, I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the narrative is if you can't say it in one sentence, then no one will listen. That's fine for certain kinds of things, but for something as nuanced, sophisticated, and important as this, there needs to be time to let the ideas breathe. Mm-hmm. I, I see something like a podcast as being kind of like putting like a drop of red ink in a glass of water, <laughs> is that it's just a tiny little drop, but it spreads. And it spreads in a way that takes time, but ultimately will fill the entire glass. So I want our ideas to be understood and then appreciated and considered by people, everybody, not just technical people, but people who have an interest in the future of human civilization, which hopefully is everyone, (laughs) and relay this message that our view, still to be determined if it's correct, is that the development of general intelligence will be the single most impactful event in the history of human civilization, and it will be the most advancing of uh, the human condition that's ever happened. It will free us from the shackles of drudgery. It won't be a utopia, of course. Nothing ever is. But um, technologies do make our lives better. Penicillin is an example. This is going to be like that. It's going to make everyone's life better. And we want to have the opportunity to communicate why without having to say it in two sentences. And a couple months ago, there was a petition online that many folks signed after ChatGPT caught the attention and imagination of the world of, whoa, let's press pause. Let's take six months, figure out what we need to do before we keep developing this. Can we all agree to stop developing AI? And I'm so curious to know, what did those background conversations look like? What was that first text message you sent each other to start talking about that and and unpacking that? <laughs> I think we... We talked about it a little bit in some of like the weekly meetings mm-hmm. and things that we have. Um, we were unanimously against the idea of, ban- of banning or pausing or stopping technological development. I don't think it helps. One interesting anecdote that I was relaying to the team at the meeting, and it, it really frustrated me about this announcement in particular, was that people in the AI community and in the wider technology futurism type spheres have been talking about this forever. Mm -hmm. Years, if not decades. And so what happened previously was that all the um, policymakers and, you know, the general public and other people were saying, oh, that's just stupid, that's just science fiction, that's never going to happen, it's hundreds of years away, if not more. And then as soon as it actually happened, which, by the way, was very predictable if you look at the, the data points and the trends of where it was going, it was like, whoa, 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 we have to stop. This came out of nowhere. We didn't see this coming. So I found it very frustrating that what had been ridiculed and just brushed under the carpet as as science nerds talking about ideas 
suddenly it flipped. Mm-hmm. And so what, what really frustrated me about it was that there are ideas like that now that are also being swept under the carpet and we're being told our hundreds of years away that are going to erupt onto the scene in just as spectacular a fashion as mm-hmm. something like the GPT models did. And people are having exactly the same reaction to those. Decades-long overnight successes, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I, I was kind of like, I guess lecturing the team a little bit on on that um when i don't think we should we should stop the progress of technology what i think we need to do which was a lesson from that anecdote is that people need to start looking seriously at these what seem like very futuristic science fiction type ideas now paying attention to them taking them seriously mm-hmm. and then they will have time to think about them and think about how we should react to them and make policies around them And and Jordi, why do you think people stop themselves from engaging with them or thinking about these issues that Suzanne's raising? What gets in the way? We're hardwired to think very short term because that's what allowed our ancestors to survive is what what what's going to happen over the next week is a lot more important to your ultimate survival than what will happen in a few years from now. We just can, we're, we're naturally hardwired to not be able to think about the consequences of certain kinds of things that change exponentially. So the, the idea of an exponential is that the more of something you have, the more it grows, you know, it's a feedback thing. There are very few things that matter on the scale of a week that have that feature. Mm-hmm. So we don't think that way. And we have trouble conceptualizing the uh, things that change at that at that kind of pace there's a a, an entire cottage industry by the way of pointing this out is that there are certain kinds of things especially in technology which tends to have this positive feedback mechanism where the better it gets the better it gets and pointing out that we're not good at, at 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 predicting the the future and that we have to become good at it so in particular in things like anything that requires is a is that basic computation is going to have this flavor because computation has over a period of a long time, you know, many, many decades advanced exponentially in its ca- its character and capabilities. So part of the reason why the AI models that people are talking about today and have driven a lot of the discourse, they ride on the back of this exponentially growing compute capability. Um, so they're one of them. But some of the other things that Suzanne's talking about engage other kinds of exponential trends. So I'll just mention two, birth rates exponentially drive populations. So we're undergoing a dramatic shift in the demographics of people globally from a period which we're all familiar with and kind of take for granted of exponential growth or something that approximates it where the birth rate is above replacement and we just assume that populations will grow forever to one where that number is shrinking and in the not too distant future will be below replacement globally, not just in certain parts of the world, but all of it. And when that happens, the population decreases exponentially. So this is another one of these trends that people are not good at understanding. That's an example of a, of a, of a trend. The other one that I'll point out is the decreasing cost of building robots. So this is a one that is, of course, intertwined with our business. The cost of building a robot like Phoenix is is exponentially decreasing over time. In fact, I don't think it would have even been possible with all of the world's resources to build that robot ten years ago. If you had a if you had a 
you know, a global effort to build a an advanced humanoid robot 10 years ago. You couldn't have built the thing that we've got in the lab that we built as a small company in Vancouver. So this trend leads to, if you keep following it, robots that have the capabilities of a human body within a very short period of time. So I think the thing that Suzanne was alluding to is that we've been telling people that embodied AI, that is AI in a body, is going to be way bigger than this generative AI stuff. We've been saying that for at least a decade, if not more. And it's largely fallen on deaf ears because I don't think people can actually conceptualize what the future would be like if you could build a machine that was essentially like a person. Mm -hmm. It's one of those ideas that seems like, okay, I can't believe that because the most advanced machine I have in my house is like my dishwasher and that's nothing <laughs> like a person. So how <laughs> the hell are you going to go from that to that? And the reason is this thing that the GPT phenomenon mm -hmm. is that it looks like it's stupid and silly until it's not. And that happens within months. So with this type of technology, the same thing's going to happen is that it's going to look kind of silly until it's doing everything that a person can do. And you're going to be wondering, where did this come from? Go back in this podcast and, you know, <laughs> look at the timestamp. We told you it was coming. We should start looking at policy now, mm -hmm. not then. Uh, why people don't do this. I think that they're just overwhelmed with the problem of the day. You know, everybody has a list of things longer than their arm of things they have to take care of that are like, you know, fires that are being put out and the more future looking stuff tends to always be put, put back on the agenda. I really want to talk more about the current state of your technology. Uh, you two are world leaders in developing human-like intelligence in general purpose robots or embodied AI. The work you're doing is remarkable. And Suzanne, before we get into the details, you framed this so well when you talked about the cup of tea. Would you mind just sharing with our listeners how you thought through that? Yeah, so we were having a lot of conversations at Sanctuary about what what is actually AI and what isn't AI. And um, I was I was saying, well, I don't think these um, like transformer models, like GPT style models are really AI. And someone said, well, what can't they do? And I immediately kind of gut reaction turned around and said, well, they can't make me a cup of tea. And it was sort of a glib throwaway remark. But then I started thinking about it more. And I was like, no, this is actually a really interesting case study to work through. Why can't these things make me a cup of tea? Seems silly, right? And then, well, in order to make a cup of tea, you have to physically interact with the world. This is not bringing me a cup of tea in the metaverse. This is like a real <laughs> physical cup of tea because I'm British and I, I want a real cup of tea. <laughs> Um, not a virtual one. <laughs> so I was like, okay, these things need to interact with the real world and therefore they need to have some kind of physical body. We build robots. Um, I would assume most people would think of a physical thing interacting with the world as a, as a robot, but a robot that could go into the kitchen, open the cupboards, find the tea bags, turn the kettle on, fill the kettle with water, all these kind of things. You need that interaction with the physical world and you need your AI to truly understand what, what words and concepts mean in the physical world. So when a transformer model talks about a cup or a kettle or a faucet or something like that, it kind of has a sense of what that means from everything it's read. But imagine if you were locked in a like a prison cell for years and years and all you were doing was reading books about cups and kettles and physical objects and you'd never actually interacted with one. Your way of understanding the world would be very different than if you'd actually physically 
touched things, picked things up, interacted with physical objects. So we believe AI is missing that physical component. And I think it's one of the reasons we see a lot of problems with language models. Language models sometimes just say things that make absolutely no sense. And anyone who's interacted with the real world knows that that is a really weird thing to say. And so we think by adding in knowledge about the real world to these models, it will dramatically improve their intelligence. It's almost like the large language model knows that the most probable next word to is cup to pour the tea into the, you know, the most probable world is cup. And the point you're making so well is, but it doesn't know what a cup is. And so actually embodying, having robots that are engaging with the world and understanding what's around them is just critical to our next phase. And Jordi, can you share a bit about why you believe manufacturing is of critical importance to future economic developments for its potential on the human experience? Manufacturing, the way I I think about it is, is making things, right? So it's not some weird exotic, you know, thing that only applies to cars or something like this. <laughs> Manufacturing as a category is the process of of making things. And our our world is filled with things, right? Everything from cars to pencils and all of that. And they need to be made. So I think that there's a uh, manufacturing for me is is actually a fundamental part of all the entire human experience is that being able to make things cheaply and well drives prosperity. So the unfortunate thing about that category is that over, you know, historically it's been cheaper to make things elsewhere, not in North America. And so we've lost to a certain extent the ability to make things, which is terrible. Because if you think about like the economies of the the uh, big tech companies, uh, not all of them, but most of them, run on this concept of, say, advertising or some other business model that is driven through computers. They don't make things. Again, I'm generalizing here because mm-hmm. it's not exactly literally true, but the the manufacturing of physical goods is not a big part of most of these companies. Even chip companies, they're made in other places like Taiwan. As a principle of the future, being able to make beautiful things that are valuable and advanced and cool that should be a property of a country you live in. The country you live in should be able to make things. And uh, so I am kind of spiritually aligned with the idea of manufacturing as a thing. In Canada and the United States and places, you know, the, that are close to where I physically am. Uh, this is, I, I don't want to uh, belabor this too much, but all science and technology fundamentally requires building things. Even if you're a basic scientist, you need to construct experiments to test your hypotheses. This is a very, very fundamental human activity. All right. So what now becoming interested in is the intersection of artificial intelligence of the sort that Suzanne is discussing, which is the understanding of the physical world and robotics, which are the the, the processes by which we change the physical world and putting them together in a way that you could manufacture things in a new way. So that is at at some level of abstraction, let's say you have an idea for a thing, but it's very vague. You have, okay, well, I wish this thing existed in the world. And I could kind of sketch what it was. What if you could take your abstract sketch, hand it over to an advanced artificial intelligence, have it suggest a whole bunch of modifications that not only improve your design, but make it manufacturable, then manufactures it and gives you a prototype. What if anyone could do that? 
Like, you know how in chat GPT, anybody with a computer can like type in natural language and they get a, you know, an essay on something. What if you could say, you know, I really wish this particular thing existed in the world. And then you'd get one back, mm -hmm. like an actual thing with wires and computers and, and metal and all of the rest of it. So this obviously is far beyond what we can do today, but this is the idea that I've been kind of uh, uh, revolving in my head. And uh, I'm not alone in this. There's this concept which is kind of called factory of the future, which is related to what I'm talking about, where um, manufacturing, the idea we have in our head is like the Ford assembly line. No, it's more like what I'm talking about is like anybody with an idea could get a thing and uh, I think that this would be one of these Cambrian explosion events. If you could actually un unleash the creativity of people, so you didn't need to have 17 engineering degrees and $100 million to build a widget, then you could, you could dramatically explode the possibilities of things. And people do this now in software. Mm -hmm. Like There are a lot of people who build little software things and weekend projects, and it's cool and all that. You still need to be able to program. What if you lifted that constraint and you made it in the physical world? So this is one of these ideas that starts off as like we were talking about earlier. It's a rough sculpture. So the question is, how do you carve it down to make it real? So the, the next step in this process for me is to figure out how do we go from here to there? And I have ideas about how to do that, but I, you might tell from my, you know, my tone of voice or whatever, I'm very excited about this. I think that it's a good interaction between the mission of sanctuary which is to build human-like intelligence and general purpose robots and a very tangible large outcome that affects billions of people in the world in a positive way so how do we connect the two we're working on it but yeah. i like it a lot can i add something Please. to that okay yeah. so because i can imagine like people listening to this are thinking oh great more stuff that's just what we need <laughs> right like you can now go to your computer and say i want this thing and you just get it and it just the world is filled with more and more stuff but you could apply exactly what jordi's talking to the opposite side of the equation so recycling and reusing materials yes. so imagine you had not just factories of the future but you had reuse and recycling facilities of the future that were full of the kind of technology Jody's talking about. So all that stuff that you just <laughs> ordered and you have and you don't want anymore, you just send to this factory and then the advanced AI is actually able to disassemble, take things apart, sort materials and apply advanced techniques to actually recycling things way better than we can now. So I'm very excited about the future of reusing materials and actually re regaining value from things like waste and landfill and stuff like that. And I think you can apply the same techniques to that too. I think when people hear you talk about general purpose robots, they imagine Phoenix at a factory that instead of a person being in a factory, Phoenix is in the exact same type of factory that we have today. And what you're talking about is actually modularizing and making building stuff just transforming how that works and integrating general purpose robots into that process, which is just totally different. And the the AI systems that power them. I think that the one of the difficult communication challenges of what we do is that the robot is so obvious that it def it deflects attention from the real star of the show, which is the mind of the robot. That is the key element of the value that's being created. The body is a, is a vehicle through which the mind expresses itself in the world. So it's a way for the mind to affect the world. And the reason it's humanoid is that the kinds of tools and, and infrastructure that we built requires that in order for it to fit in. 
and use our tools from anything from getting into and out of a car to, uh, you know, cleaning the inside of an oil tank. You know, all of those things require the human form if you're going to do it effectively. So the, the factory of the future thing starts with this, is it starts with automation of certain things that are very difficult for machines to automate, but then it transitions into something else because that's not the end of the story. And so I, I, this is part of this process that I, is my kind of role here is to figure out what is the roadmap? You know, how do we go from something that we can do where the customer, which will pay us to do a certain thing to some beautiful future and kind of, you know, connect the dots. Speaking of the way that your robots look, so Suzanne, I know in addition to being a technical mind, you're talking about your creative process. You are an artist yes. as well. Yeah. And so <clears throat> when contemplating what the robots would look like, some folks that are listening, maybe picturing, you know, like Wally from Pixar or I don't know if you remember from the 80s, the Omnibot 2000. Do you remember? It, mm. it could hold a cup and it mm -hmm. would just like drive in and out of your, <laughs> it, all, that's all it could do is you could get it. Wasn't there one of those in one of the Rocky movies? Yes, there was. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so when, when, you, when you were thinking about that, instead of it having treads or floating, mm -hmm. Jordy's speaking to the functional requirement to optimize its functionality in the world we exist in, it being human-like was important. Yeah. Can you speak a bit about the details around that, the hands, the vision, the mind of the mm -hmm. robot? Yeah, so when we when we started Sanctuary, we we were very strict in the definition of the design and aesthetic of the robot. It has to look like a person. So we took that to the extreme and we actually had some robots that had human-like faces and things like that. And we discovered that uh, once we'd ingrained into the culture of Sanctuary that we are building things that are like that are like humans, we actually could relax the constraints on it mm -hmm. looking exactly like a human. So I think we've reached a nice middle ground now where it looks very much like a robot. So it does doesn't, well, at least I think it doesn't fall into the uncanny valley <laughs> too much, but it's also still obviously very human-like. So the aesthetic I was going was kind of like a movie character robot that could be brought to life and could be expressive, but in the way it moves dynamically rather than saying how its face looks or something like that. So the, the face, if you like, of the Phoenix robot is very robotic. It's very static. There is no facial expression or anything like that you know it doesn't blink or smile or anything but it's still extremely expressive in the way its head moves and the way it like looks at you it's it's actually very cool so we designed phoenix to be very industrial looking and very robotic looking and we wanted that particular aesthetic if you've seen the movie chappie that's kind of the aesthetic we really like in robots where they look pretty industrial and functional and they're not covered in these like plastic covers that make them look like kind of gadgets or consumer electronics kind of look. We wanted something that still looked really industrial, but was also kind of aesthetically pleasing. Um, yeah. Behind Phoenix right now, you mentioned that you have pilots. Can you speak a bit about their role, mm -hmm. why it's important to, to test Phoenix and take the robots through different motions driven by a human? Yeah, so I mentioned a little bit about how we initially control the robots using this teleoperation mode of control. And by the way, if you see in any of the Phoenix videos, there's like a light on the front of the robot. 
um, and the light color depicts what mode it's running in. So we, we get a lot of people saying, oh, you're you're running that using teleop and it's kind of cheating and you're obscuring. It's like, no, we always have this like clear indicator of what mode the robot's running in at all times. Yes, we put a person behind the scenes with, um, we, we call it piloting rig. It's like a VR headset, speakers, microphone, and then this exosuit system that they wear and haptic gloves as well. So when the pilot moves their body, the robot is moving in the same way and they're feeling everything the robot is feeling with its hands it's seeing through the robot's cameras and hearing everything in the room so when when this happens and the pilot takes control of the robot they feel like they are the robot if you're in this rig you are completely immersed in the robot body and you actually start to think you're like iron man or something it's pretty (laughs) it's pretty cool i've actually done it quite a bit um, actually, as a funny aside, if you do this long enough, you'll start having dreams that you're a robot rather <laughs> than a person. So it's kind of it's kind of fun. So why why do we do this? So the first most important reason is that we need to test that the robot, the physical robot body, is capable of doing the kind of tasks that we eventually want the AI mind to be able to do. So it's like putting the body through its paces to see mm-hmm. if we built something that's physically worthy of. Be, um, what we want the AI to do. And it's important that you split those two things apart because if you don't do that, you don't know whether your AI isn't working properly or whether your robot's not working properly. So you want to test those two things independently. So if you test it with a person, you're just testing the robot hardware. So that's reason one. The second reason is that as a from a business model perspective, we can now deploy that robot immediately with a person controlling it and it can do valuable tasks already. So even though you still would need to pay the person who's operating it a salary, that robot can go into remote places where you wouldn't want to send people that could be far away, dangerous, bad environmental conditions. And now robot can do jobs when the person is in the comfort of a nice um, piloting studio, not having to leave, say, the city or anything like that. So that's that's reason two. And then the third reason is we get loads of data streaming from the both the robot and the piloting rig at that point and we can actually use those data to train the AI system. So you get lots and lots of really good unique kinds of data about how people actually move when they're performing tasks, what they do with their hands, how they move their body, what they look at, all this data you can actually use to help train the AI to become more human-like. It sounds like there's a space in the future for both the teleop-operated approach and the autonomous approach. Yeah, we actually blend them in the control system. So it's not just like you get a robot and it's one or the other. There Mm. is a system in the background that decides whether the AI should be in control, whether the pilot should be in control, or whether it should be a blend of the two. And that will continue to be part of the product because there could always be an edge case that your AI isn't sure about. You always want to have a person uh, on call if you like, that's that's like ready to jump in and help the AI if it's struggling. So Jordi, you know, when you look at your track record, in addition to graduating from engineering physics at McMaster University, shout good out to program, the I hear. <laughs> I hear it's a great program. Um, you know, started D-Wave in 1999 before anyone was talking about quantum computing. You integrated AI into general purpose robots years before there was a conversation about that through your work at Kindred. How do you maintain your motivation and vision? This is a question for both of you. When so few people see what you see as early as you see it, what's that like? Well, I always think that I really want to see these kind of systems exist in the future and they don't exist yet. So I just have that picture in my mind of the 
the robot of the future that's integrated with society living amongst us and solving hard problems. I think one of the things that initially motivated me to go into this field was I was trying to do physics. I was like a physicist originally, and I realized that my brain, maybe maybe not just me, but the human brain in general is not really designed to do very complicated physics and mathematics. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a few brains are, but not mine. So I was like, maybe you could help build AI tools to do better science for us. So I love that idea of having AI in the future be artificial scientists that could be making new discoveries and helping contribute to, to the world. And even I was talking about this like recycling problem, like there are a lot of problems in the world that I think could be solved by improved AI and robotics. So that kind of keeps me motivated and keeps me going. Lots of unsolved problems still. Awesome. Yeah. Jordy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what do we, why do we do anything? <laughs> Uh, Johnny's just an automaton. He doesn't. Know I am a philosophical anything. zombie. I have no conscious experience. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think um, I'm not really motivated primarily by the judgments of others. So you know, I think that like a lot of my career has been people. They'll they'll never say it directly to you, but kind of implying that you're an idiot. <laughs> so I think uh, maybe not idiot is the wrong word, but maybe delusional. So nearly my entire experience at D-Wave was facing people who would, I think, project that attitude that the, there was absolutely no way, even in principle, that a small company could build such a technology. And so you were clearly delusional, even if you were reading it in a positive way and you weren't just, you know, selling snake oil or something. But, you know, I think that a lot of people that would have really hurt them in some mm -hmm. way, but... I don't know. It's just some constitutional thing is I just can't find it in me to care. Right. You know, I don't like working on things I don't think I can do because why would you do that? So I have this, you know, worldview and, and kind of belief system about what's possible and what isn't. And um, I take on challenges that I think are possible, but right on the edge of possible, partly because I like the challenge. You know, it's like, why do we climb Everest? Because it's there. I mm -hmm. think that that's not really a good answer, but I think it's deep in some way and it kind of speaks to the human condition. Like, why do we do anything? I think that we have an innate desire to explore. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, because the entire earth is essentially maybe the deep oceans haven't, but most of the earth has been explored. Where do you explore if you're an explorer? So for me, the exploration happens in the domain of uh, science and technology. Like we want to explore frontiers, things that we don't know. And there's a, there's a big mystery that's always kind of shaded my, my approach, which is the, this mystery of first person experience. Like you feel like a thing, you have this conscious first person experience. Mm -hmm. What exactly is that? So you might think, well, what is building superconducting processors have to do with that? Well, when I was younger, I thought it had a lot to do with it because my attitude was, you know, if this conscious thing in the way we are as people is fundamentally a computational thing. That's what I thought because of physics background and all that. So if we could build like the ultimate computer, that would have something to say about solving that problem. Now, I don't believe that anymore, but it was part of my motivation early on. And then when we started doing AI and robotics, it was certainly part of my thinking is like, you know, kind of like to understand how the human mind works. Mm -hmm. So how would we do that? Well, let's build one. And the, and then Sanctuary kind of has taken that and put it on steroids. At least part of my motivation is I've always wanted to try to understand fundamental things about the way the world works. 
And I found that being a theoretical physicist, although I thought in my early life was the path to doing that, realized I was disillusioned with that path early on. And I, it wasn't like that in practice. So I wanted to essentially build things that were, you know, in that, in that direction. I don't know if I've succeeded, but it's always been kind of the motivation behind all of these different things. Can you take us into the vision for the next 10 to 20 years? Jordy was talking about the exponential drop in the cost of general purpose robots or autonomous robots that have human-like intelligence. And it'll feel like a surprise when it happens, but we're already on that trajectory. So when that's unlocked, when it gets to that certain level, what's, what's possible for us in the next 10 to 20 years? I think what we're going to see is, again, we talked about the cost of building these robots at the moment. They're very expensive. And as you as you build more and more of them and you start to find niche applications and tasks that they can do in the real world, that will drive the volumes and drive the number of them that you can build. And then the cost will come down. So although they're expensive now, I can imagine these things becoming um about roughly equivalent to the cost it makes to manufacture a car. What that means is that everyone will be able to either afford one of these robots or afford the services of one of these robots in the future. And if I like to think about things like uh, cell phone technologies. So at one point, a cell phone was ridiculously expensive. It um, only very odd and unusual people had them or were interacting with them and then or suddenly... Or Zach from Saved by the Bell. I don't know if you remember Zach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cell phones, but smartphones as well. And then yeah. suddenly almost overnight, I think it, for me, it was around like 2010 when I got my first smartphone, but it just exploded. And then suddenly everyone had a smartphone and it was just within, within reach. So I think we'll see the same thing with these robots. You'll see one or two of them. They'll be very odd, kind of like weird oddities at the start. And then over time, there'll be more more and more of them and then overnight it'll just suddenly be like everywhere like cars are now cars or cell phones so I think and almost they'll be so ubiquitous and commonplace that they won't be unusual anymore mm -hmm. they'll just be like another thing another <laughs> piece of technology so 10 to 20 years in the future I think what's going to happen is these robots will start to find um, niche applications initially, uh, where they are really helping people, taking people out of harm's way, solving labor shortages where we can't get people to work in, say, remote places, things like that. So there'll be some news stories about them. There'll be a big um, splashy news stories about how robot is doing this and robot is doing that. And then I think people start seeing them in more local places, mm -hmm. like but, but they'll be still unusual and maybe they'll only be one in every city or something like that. And then overnight, they'll just suddenly proliferate and be everywhere. And then within 10 to 20 years, I could even imagine them being working in people's homes, um, in like hospitals and um, care facilities and things like that, just doing all those tasks that are, that are not very <laughs> rewarding to have to do over and over again, the repetitive kind of drudgery type tasks that Jody talked about. So yeah, I could see them proliferating. Would you add anything to that, Jordy? Well, there's going to come a point in time when there's more humanoid robots than people on the planet. The question is when, mm -hmm. not if, because they're so useful to us. The analogy of cars is an interesting one because cars are very useful to us, but for a very particular reason. Whereas these types of robots will be useful to us for all sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. Everything from the the mundane and banal but important, you know, taking care of the, you know, the the chores around the house to even going out and doing work for you and bringing an income back to you. The different kind of economic model than we use now. 
in you know at the Tesla shareholder meeting a um, couple months ago, Elon Musk made the comment that in the future everybody will want one or maybe more than one of these. And if that's true and they can afford them, then there will be more of these robots than people uh, at some point. Now, whether that will happen within 20 years is unclear. It depends on a lot of things, but I think it's an inevitability and in a, in, in a good way for us to progress into the future as birth rates decline. One of the nice things about thinking about the future is that if birth rates actually do decline and the population of the planet gets lower, there's less of a, a load on the planet. And so you can think of this as a, a potential for regreening of the earth. There will be a lot more wild spaces in the future. But in order for us to maintain and, and continue to grow our quality of life, we need to have help. And so if that the people who are traditionally supplying that are not there anymore, then we're going to need technological help. And that can come from this sort of technology. One last thing I wanted Please. to say about that is, again, I don't know whether it'll be 10 to 20 years, but I'm at some point in the future, we're going to be sending robots into space. Because really, space is not very hospitable for the kind of yeah. bodies and biology we have. That and whole breathing thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind the whole of a, ex it's kind exploding of a drag. from the vacuum pressure. <laughs> yeah. Not so fun. But so I think there's two things that can happen. Either robots can go out there and prepare mm -hmm. habitats for us so we could be specially cocooned in like nice habitats where we can thrive. Or robots could just continue expanding our civilization into space on their own. Here's here's the thing. So I I heard recently, I'm I'm not entirely sure this is true, but it came from NASA, is that there's a potentially <laughs> habitable exoplanet around a star that's only about 4.2 light years away from us, which is tiny in astronomical distances. Pretty close. <laughs> so human, the human body probably couldn't survive that trip for a bunch of reasons, but our robots could. If you wanted to establish some type of a beachhead on another planet, it seems to me absolutely clear that there's only one way to do it. It's technological and it has to be autonomous. We were talking about piloting recently. Obviously, you can't pilot something that's four light years away because it'd take four years for the visual signals to get back and forth. So it needs to be an autonomous robot with its own mind and ability to deal with you know situations as they arise. But this idea that you could actually put a human artifact on another planet circling another star is another one of these beautiful future ideas that can draw us into the future in the right way. You know, it's the right kind of thing to be thinking about. Not all this negative stuff that people are always mm. yammering on about. We need to have people thinking about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and people might think, well, why is that important? Like, we've got so many problems here, but ideas like that are what motivates the next generation, yeah. right? To go into science and technology, like thinking about going, like traveling to the stars and space travel and things are what like sparks the imagination in young kids who are thinking of going into science. So I don't by, think it's... By the way, that is not just an academic statement. My oldest son specifically got back interested in school because he became very interested in the idea of building spaceships. So I actually, my time at McMaster, I was talking to a guy at this event we were at the other, the other day, and my, my senior thesis at, at Mac was building a spaceship engine out of a nuclear reactor. So I was really, really interested in this idea of building like space things when I was, you know, in my early twenties, late teens. And in fact, it like was my overwhelming focus in school. And I don't know, maybe it's genetic or something, but he really got taken by this idea and got reignited his interest in school and STEM, you know, math mm -hmm. and physics and things like that. So this, this is a real effect, mm -hmm. you know, the whole like uh, 1969, we will go to the moon thing. 
So I think that the world is always at peril of losing purpose and hope. And these kinds of like things that bring everyone together, you know, going, going to another planet isn't an American thing. It's a, it's a human thing. So people throwing barbs at you, this is naive. You're not really, you know, the geopolitics of China, all of this. Okay, fine. You know, right. I get it. But listen to me. If you lose purpose in your life, what do you do? And the answers are not good historically. Mm -hmm. If you have a, have, a, have a civilization or a group of people who have no purpose, what happens? War. Mm -hmm. it's, it's happened over and over and over again in, in human history. There are really good reasons for, as, a, as, as leadership, to give people a reason to present themselves in their life every day. Not just work, but like everything. Yeah. Why are you here? If there is no implicit thing that just happens in you that I know why I'm here, it's this, which not everyone has. There needs to be these sort of civilization level goals. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. dangerous to not have them. So I think that the the idea of going to another planet, my God, wouldn't that be cool? And, you know, everybody could feel like they were participating in it. So I, I don't know if we're going to play a role in that. Who knows? But I think you already are playing a role in that. But the idea of actually using robots is obviously the right way to do mm -hmm. it. What would it take? I'm not sure. You know, going back to this, what would it take? Because yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. a space engineer, unfortunately. Maybe I should have been. But <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could do it. I love that. I really admire the way the two of you work together and the way that you enable each other to stay creative and stay curious and stay imaginative. What advice do you have for young folks that are trying to figure out their way, trying to figure out how they can apply themselves, how they can stay creative or find partners like the way that you found each other in this partnership at Sanctuary to continue to to cultivate that hopefulness and inspiration? I would say maybe look look outside your own discipline. Mm -hmm. So I think the most interesting ideas happen at the intersection of, of disciplines. If you think about something like AGI, artificial general intelligence, it's not just about computer science or yeah, machine learning, right? It's about robotics and mechatronics and electronics and neuroscience and understanding the human condition, even things like... Um, the, the social interactions we have with each other, psychology, all these different disciplines come together when you're trying to build something like a mind. So, you know, maybe if you're, I don't know, let's say you're um, an undergrad who's studying computer science or something, go to a neuroscience conference, right? And it's probably going to be really interesting and fun because you're going to see a lot of ideas that you've never heard about before. Whereas if you go to a computer science conference, it's the same, the same thing over and over again. So go to a neuroscience conference, like go to a, I don't know, go to a psychology, go to a, con um, a conference on consciousness, because mm -hmm. those exist. Um, so yeah, I think just keep learning about things from different, different disciplines, pushing the boundary of what you know and what you consider within your envelope of what you do, what you're interested in. Continue to expand. Yeah. yeah. Jordy? Uh, so I, I always just got by when I was in high school and in, in, in undergrad in my early years in grades. I was not a good student. And I, I got, you know, just passing grades in a lot of things when I was younger. And I think that the, uh, this can be very discouraging to people because they can't do as well as others. But my advice to people is 
you don't have to be the best at everything to to succeed or have that feeling that you've done something important. I think the most most important thing is to keep at it. Don't give up. Do things you love doing and don't listen to others about what those are. The future is going to be very different than the present. And in the present, people are saying, oh, you have to learn how to program. You have to learn math. You have to learn all these things. It could be that in the future, it's none of those things that are the important properties of being a person. So if you have a passion, let's say, I don't know, you like writing Dungeons and Dragons modules and that's where you like playing video games or you like doing something. I think being as good as you can be at those things is the first piece of advice I would give. And don't give up when you're struggling. If everybody else in your class is getting like 98% on the calculus exam and you're getting 50, don't give up because, you know, I got 50 for many years before it clicked. But even if it doesn't click at some point, who cares? You want to just not give up. If there's one thing that I'd kind of like say characterizes all of the things that I've liked about my past, it's been that I was very, very bad at them for a long time. Mm before I finally got lucky enough to do something important. So in my sports career, my, I, I used to wrestle. My first year of wrestling, I lost every single match. The second year, I lost most of them. And then finally something clicked, but I stuck with it. And I was very proud of that. I'm more proud of the fact that I was really, really terrible at it. And I eventually became good at it than the fact that I was good at it. And, and school is the same. Many years, I was struggled to get by and even get passing grades. And then something happened and then I got better at it. And I'm more proud of that than, you know, a lot, a lot of people have things handed to them and they're like, yay, look at me. But that's not what success is. You know, my, my football coach in my first year of playing, cause I was terrible, used to tell me that success is measured by the the magnitude of the obstacles you overcome, mm. which is a really deep thing about life, is that success is not winning a gold medal. It's about overcoming the things that are in front of you. And uh, if you can just do that, then that is much more meaningful than being, you know, the Olympic gold medalist. Everybody has like a different set of, you know, God-given attributes. I think that it's how you apply them, not what they are that is the the measure of like a life well lived. So for all of the young people, if there are any who are listening to this and you're struggling in your life, the advice I would give you is just focus on the things you love doing and keep at it, don't give up. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hello, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. It's great to be back and such a great feeling to sit in a room with Jordi and Suzanne for the podcast. There's just something about the physical world, isn't there? Embodied AI? Is that, <laughs> is that the thread we're pulling here? We're just embodied I, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, so we were talking a lot about robotics and building robotics and having robots build other things, I feel like it's almost becoming a lost craft or pastime. But when was the last time any of you actually just built something from like scratch with your own hands? Does Lego count? I suppose so. Then very recently. (laughs) Sonia, I remember your shoe rack with the lights. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I did build a shoe case that had LED lights that could 
change colors whenever you wanted them to change colors. That's awesome. This sat in the corner of my Zoom screen throughout the pandemic. Because I know there's just some people who are worried that the majority of humans are losing the skill of building things themselves. Everyone has a story of like, oh, my like great, great grandpa built this house with his own hands and cut down those logs himself. And then you think today, like, would I be able to do that? Absolutely not. I mean, never say never. You also had never run a marathon until you ran two. (laughs) (laughs) So I could probably build a house just poorly is what we're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Over a very extended period of time. And at the end, you'd wrap yourself in a little tinfoil blanket like they do. That's the insulation for the house. (laughs) Okay, what about you, Amar? When's the last time you built something? Well, I was going to ask if Ikea furniture counts. So yes, yes, (laughs) many. I am the go-to builder of furniture in the house. So I can read through an Ikea instruction booklet very, very well. It was probably over five years ago, but this tall bookshelf behind me, I built from scratch, like... I got lumber at Home Depot. Oh, this is not a Billy bookcase? Measured it myself because like I wanted it to reach the very top of my ceiling, which is a custom size. This was a custom designed shelf? Yes, I suppose so. It was actually quite easy though. It is just two long pieces of wood and then you put smaller ones in between them as shelves. It wasn't too difficult, but... We're impressed. We are impressed. Yeah. And I think you stained it too because... Yeah, I did stain it myself. But the one right beside it, though, that's from Ikea. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't building as much as it was assembling. A sophisticated litter box for my cat. Mm -hmm. Self-cleaning. Okay, yes, I see. LED lights available, (laughs) even though cats have night vision. So even cats are using technology and robotics now. Weight sensors installed to keep you up to date on the latest goings on, if you understand what I mean. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It must collect so much data. It's personal health information on the cat is what it is. Well, also, I mean, she never signed a waiver. I will say that. So there's a certain <laughs> amount of guilt, I feel. Oh, no. She now doesn't know that I have a data stream available to me at any period of time. Yeah. Okay, regulations will catch up eventually, right? <laughs> And then so also on that note of robotics, what is the one thing that you wish a robot would do for you? Amar, go. Put the clean dishes from the dishwasher, take them out and put them in where they're supposed to go in all of the cabinets. A hundred percent. Yeah. Is that yours as well, Elizabeth? Mine is actually folding and putting away the laundry. So I guess it's very similar. That's my number two. I'm going to be even more specific. Folding a fitted sheet. Mm -hmm. Yes. If there was ever a purpose for a quantum computer, this is probably it. (laughs) I just don't think if any robot is trying to follow the TikTok videos where they teach you how to fold a fitted sheet, I just don't think a robot can do that. So right now that's limited to humans. What about the TikTok video craze where it was chop these vegetables like this, put it in a thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think you're describing cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Robot chefs. Good idea, bad idea. Good. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't developed a stance on this yet. Oh, no. (laughs) My question was on this whole, like, factory of the future thread. So one of the things that Suzanne was talking about, one is, I wish this particular thing existed in the world. We've shared what those are going to be. 
And then Suzanne asked, like, what about the recycling element of it? So all of a sudden there's a piece of technology you have that you don't want anymore and you send it in to be recycled to then be used for parts for, I wish this thing existed in the world. So mm. if you could recycle something, what could it be? This is a great question. My Sega Genesis. Is it bad? I don't know what that is. It's a gaming console. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog was birthed through Sega. Didn't know that. But why, why do you want to recycle it? Because at this point, I'm not using the original console anymore or the controllers. Maybe a robot could make it into something useful. A robot to fold feta sheets? Yeah, I would like to one day be able to recycle my laundry robot because for some reason I no longer need it. But also it's a reality where I did have it at one point. Now that is vision. That's several <laughs> steps down the line. 